We'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. Um, I trust that all of you had a wonderful Christmas and that you come this morning uh, ready to celebrate and to continue to celebrate. Uh, I don't know about you, last Sunday after the service, uh, I left here on mission and uh, there was one boy in my home who wanted one thing that was sold out everywhere. And so uh, just, I left here thinking, what am I going to do? And uh, going to all these stores, making all these phone calls, and, and uh, ended up calling this place in Marysville, Ohio, who had it. And so first thing, Monday morning, drove, got it, uh, wiped my brow. Uh, and, you know, there's all of those things that kind of build up to holidays or whatever that build anticipation and joy and excitement over the, the specifics of it as well. We talked about last week about just the joy of Christmas is, is Christ. It's who He is and what He's done. But there are joys in our lives, when, when, when the psalmist says, you are the joy of my joys, he's, he's talking about there are specific joys that we experience in life. There are, there are particular things, right? There are just day in and day out things that bring us joy. And we can say in the midst of those joys, God, you're the joy that makes those joyful, like the psalmist writes, but there's also a reality that as we approach those seasons in our lives, whether it's Christmas or, or other things, we can build up an anticipation and then once it's gone, feel a little bit of a letdown. And maybe you experience that. Maybe you experience coming away and, and, and realizing, man, Christmas is over. This is the last Sunday of the year. Tomorrow's the last day of the year, and I, I can't believe that. I can't believe that it has gone this quickly. And maybe you are feeling even a sadness over, man, Christmas and the buildup and all of it. I don't know about you. My tree is down already. Um, that doesn't mean I'm a Scrooge. It just means it was dry, uh, and I needed it out of the house. Uh, and so, you know, those things come and those things go, and sometimes it can bring a sadness or you may feel a sadness in the midst of that and if that is you or even if you've come this morning full of joy this text is wonderful and hopeful and helpful it is a good reminder it is a needed reminder for us a reminder of who we are in Christ and how we are that in Christ. And so go ahead and stand, follow along. Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us 
all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the truth of this text. We praise you for your word. We praise you for Jesus. And we ask, Lord, I ask you to help us. Help us to be attentive to the truth of your words here in Colossians 2. Help us to hear. Help us to rejoice in the truth of who you are and all that you have accomplished in Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. When the previous verse, Paul tells the Colossians and us that they are filled up with the fullness of Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And that is a wonderful and hopeful truth. Full of His fullness, Paul is saying. In Christ we are filled. We are full. And as you contemplate the weightiness of what he has said in that text, that the full fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form and we are filled with his fullness. That's wonderful and hopeful. And Paul continues in these verses giving more insight into this fullness and how it was accomplished in Christ. He begins these verses explaining that the Colossians were full because in Christ they had participated and we have participated in the events of the cross, namely Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That they were a part of that because of Christ. He explains how this state of fullness, us being filled in Him, has come into being. And it is all Christ. It is all because of Christ. Verse 11, in Him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now this verse, and honestly this section, specifically verses 11 and 12, has brought about much discussion. And in fact, church denominations are built upon some of its teaching or what they interpret as its teaching. And so we ought to deal with that as we go through the text and look at what Paul is meaning. The debate comes from what Paul's referring to here when he mentions both circumcision and baptism in the same context. He says, of all who are in Christ, in Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. A circumcision, as you know, is a physical act that Abraham was commanded to perform after the birth of male children. It was a means of identifying them as the people of God. In fact, those who were not the people of God were, for, were referred to as the uncircumcised or the uncircumcision. But Paul's not saying that the Colossians or us were physically circumcised here. He's using that as a spiritual picture of what took place when we were united in Christ. 
And that's not a strange connection that he's making. In, making in the Old Testament, it was used as a metaphor. Circumcision was used as a metaphor there as well. Moses called for the circumcision of the heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, and Paul uses the same connection in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, where he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And so it's not this, or it is this non-physical circumcision that Moses and Paul refer to that Paul has in mind here in Colossians 2. He says, with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, a circumcision made by God, something God did. And Paul's giving us a picture of the transition from our old life before Christ to our new life in Christ. And it's a graphic picture. Something was cut off. Something had to be cut off. He says, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And Paul is using this as a metaphor for the conquering of the power of sin that takes place when a person comes to Jesus. It's a cutting off. Romans 6 verse 6 says this, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Something had to be cut away. The body of flesh was put off or cut off by the circumcision of Christ. We were under the domination of sin, the dominion of sin. We were, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What Paul's saying is there's no one excluded from that truth. It's who we were. And something had to be done. A surgery had to be done. A cutting off had to be done. We needed circumcision of the heart, and Christ provides that, Paul is saying. Circumcision of the heart that Moses called for and that Paul identifies as marking the new covenant people of God has been accomplished in our union with Christ. It is Christ's circumcision and fully provides for the subduing of the flesh. And therefore, we no longer live under the power of the flesh. That's what Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians 5.24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with, with its passions and desires. He goes on. 
Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Having been buried with him in baptism. Now here's where the debate I mentioned earlier really comes in. There are some who interpret this as Paul saying that baptism is the new covenant replacement for circumcision. That Paul is, in a sense, saying that in him you were circumcised by being baptized, and that he's making a connection that the baptism in the new covenant is a replacement for circumcision in the old covenant. So whereas a child was to be circumcised on the eighth day, there are some who would take this and say, then, then we ought to baptize children when they are infants to identify with the people of God. And let me say first, Paul is certainly referring to water baptism here. He's referring to the new covenant sacrament of being baptized, immersed in water. However, as we look at the New Testament's teaching on baptism and even Paul's purpose here, we can conclude that Paul is not comparing baptism with literal circumcision. Baptism symbolizes regeneration. Circumcision symbolizes covenantal belonging. And Paul is Paul's saying here, you've been spiritually circumcised. And that circumcision took place when you were buried with Christ and raised with Him. And that burial and resurrection with Christ happened when you were baptized. He writes to the Romans in in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now this brings us to another important question. As we see Paul's words about baptism in Romans 6, as we see Paul's words about baptism in Colossians 2, Is Paul saying here in Colossians that baptism is necessary for salvation? That you have to be baptized to be saved? And I would say that it's clear in the New Testament the answer to that is absolutely not. It is not required for salvation. Faith. Genuine faith in Christ and His work on the cross is what is required for salvation. But let's let's think about the question more deeply. Let's just not leave it there. It is absolutely true that baptism is not required for salvation. It's also true that Regular attendance and gathering with the body of Christ is not required for salvation. Would you agree? Good. I agree with you then. But 
If I told you those things about a person who identifies as a believer in Jesus Christ, they've never been baptized, and they don't, they don't really get together with the body. They don't go to church. They don't attend with the body. They don't gather with the body. If I told you those things, you would probably call into question what it is they do believe. Because as you look at the context and, and the story of the New Testament and the one another's that are just over and over and, and the necessity and, and call to be with the body and, and all that we gain from being with the body of Christ, you would scratch your head and think, wait a second, what are they reading? What are they believing? Now, hear me here. There are believers who are not baptized. But that is not the pattern. That is not the plan. That is never what is to be pursued. In fact, as you look ahead to the next text that we're going to look at next week, it's interesting that it, it transitions into a discussion about issues of conscience. Matters of conscience. Have you noticed that in all of the texts about things of conscience, none of them mention baptism? None of them mention baptism as, as something that's of the conscience, whether you want to or whether you're not, whatever. No, in fact, it's explained by Paul and by Peter in his first letter. It's something that is expected and essential and joyful and an expression of our faith. This is who I am. This is who I am. Paul says, having been buried with him in baptism. Baptism represents our identification with Jesus Christ. This is us saying, this is who I know. This is who I'm identified with. This is what he has done. He goes on in verse 12, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Again, we see this parallel with Romans 6. In both texts, Paul asserts that believers have been buried with Christ in and through baptism but also that we have been resurrected with Him. We've been raised with Him. Romans 6, 4, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We've been raised with Christ. We've been resurrected with Christ. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul says that our resurrection with Christ takes place in baptism. And then adds that it also takes place through your faith. Again, it reminds us that baptism 
though significant and important, has no power in and of itself. Apart from faith, we're lost. It's faith that is critical and necessary for salvation. And that faith, Paul says, is in the powerful working of God. Faith in the powerful working of God. It's faith in what God and God alone has done through Christ. And the full expression of that power was in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Paul says, we are raised with him. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Paul reminds us of who we were before we were united in Christ. The truth is that we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh. We were dead. We needed our hearts to be circumcised. There was no other way. This state of deadness was hopeless for us. Nothing at all we could do on our own. Paul is clear about that. There's nothing we could do. We were dead, but He made us alive. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him. It was by God. God made us alive together with Him. How did He do that? Paul tells us, and it's wonderful, having forgiven us all our trespasses. God did that. Forgave all our trespasses. We were dead because of our sins, but God made us alive because of His grace. God made us made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Listen to that again. By canceling the record of debt that stood against you, that stood against me, with its legal demands. See, you, you and I are not good people who needed a little push to get us moving in the right direction. You were guilty. You were going to stand before a just and righteous judge, the creator of all. And you were guilty. And your only prospect was hearing him say, guilty. Because as Jesus says, he never knew you. Now, there's nothing more terrifying than that thought. He wasn't going to look at you and say, 
pretty good. You made a very good effort. You did better than so-and-so. You were guilty. And the legal demands of your guilt meant eternal punishment with no hope of being with God. You were going to be condemned to eternal punishment. That truth, that truth is what makes the indescribable hope of the powerful working of God so glorious. In Christ, He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. It's exactly what Paul means when he says to the Romans, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. The legal demands of your debt, as great as the debt was, he set aside. And that doesn't mean it was just dismissed. It doesn't mean he, he said, never mind. He paid it. The demands were met, just not by you. He nailed it to the cross. Your trespasses demanded death and separation from God, and Christ took that for you on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. And the imagery that, that Paul's giving here is that of Roman authorities who would post on the cross, nailed to the cross, the crimes committed by the criminal who hung there. And your crimes were nailed to the cross. Your crimes paid for in Jesus. He was crucified for your trespasses. But he goes on. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Not only is your debt paid, this is wonderful. Not only are the legal demands set aside, those who would have been your accusers are disarmed with nothing more to say. They were put to open shame because Jesus was triumphant over them and over their accusations. Those who would have come and said, look at what they've done, now must say, look what Christ has done. The cross publicly reveals the failure of demonic powers to defeat God's plan of salvation through Christ, and they have no accusation against you. How marvelous and how wonderful is the grace of our Lord. We died with Him. We were buried with Him, Paul says. We were raised with Him. We are alive in Him. Our debt is paid past, present, and future. We are blameless. No accusation will stand against us if we are in Christ. I would ask you, are you living in light of that truth? Is your life one that is characterized by being alive in Him? 
Paul says in, is saying to the Colossians, in light of all this, why would you look anywhere else for spiritual fullness? It's found in and only in Christ. Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before Christ came to the earth. In Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love, sure love for David. Revelation twenty two seventeen says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper. Let's consider the words of Paul. The death of Jesus, his body being broken on the cross, his blood being poured out, was necessary and purposeful. Isaiah writes that by his wounds we are healed. Our record of debt is set aside, nailed to the cross. And so as you hold the bread and you hold the cup, let's worship him as we remember his sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're good and what you do is good, Lord. We praise you for the cross, Jesus, for all that you accomplished there. Thank you. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who does not trust in you, does not know you, Lord, I pray that they would today give their hearts and their lives to you and you alone. For those who do know you, Lord, as we participate in taking the bread and the cup. I pray that you would help us to remember as you've called us to and to rejoice and worship you for all that you've accomplished. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.